I'll be reading this morning from Acts chapter 8. As you find that, you can stand. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 25. And so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. And he arose and went, and behold, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. And when Philip had run up, he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you were reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this, He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away, Who shall relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with your heart, all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch. And he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. I'll pray. Lord Jesus, I again just thank you for your your work in each of our hearts to know you and to, um, to follow after you. And I pray, God, that you would again just speak to us, minister to us as we need, and that we would permit you, Lord, um, to have your good way in each of our hearts to respond to you in faith and obedience, and to walk with you uprightly. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Um, I've been meaning for the last couple of Sundays to just speak a little bit about um, the gathering together that we're doing now. now. I understand that there are still some churches that are not meeting together, and so we've kind of been ahead of the curve a little bit with some of those churches. Um, and um, I know different ones that have given announcements have said various things, but just so that you know, um, we're not saying you have to be in church. Um, it's your decision, and we're very happy that we can be gathering together and have the support of our, of our Texas government in doing so. Um, but we are not mandating, obviously, those of you that are here, and, um, that you wear a face mask or that you keep six feet apart. Um, so if you want to do that, well, then that's fine. Um, so we're really just wanting every person to exercise um, what they are comfortable with doing. Take the risk that you're comfortable with. 
And so if you're not comfortable with being in church, then we understand that. And you can watch from home as some people are doing. If you are here and want to wear a face mask, we understand that. And that's fine as well. And the same thing for when we are going to, as Jeff said, start um, our potlucks again. We understand that some folks won't feel comfortable with that. And that's fine. Others are, going to, are feeling comfortable with coming together and sharing a meal just like as we've done in the past. And so we want to make that available. So we're really just wanting you to just take the risk that you are comfortable with taking and don't feel guilty um, one way or the other or feel something's forced on you. Uh, we want you just to make the decision that you believe that you have the freedom before the Lord to make and that's good. Okay? So it's your decision. Um, back to Acts chapter 8. Last week we started with this chapter and noted that it begins with a statement on persecution. Um, Saul, the young man who, who witnessed the stoning of Stephen and who is quite the zealot for maintaining the religion of Judaism, um, is one of the key instigators in that persecution. And as a result of the persecution, the Christians in Jerusalem have been scattered except for the apostles. They're still in Jerusalem. The, fo- the, the persecution is not focusing on them. And there were other Christians who were remaining there as well. But it would seem that a vast percentage of the Christians were scattered, and in particular, the Hellenist Jews. And as they scattered, they went about proclaiming Jesus wherever they went. And that brought us to Philip. And Philip was one of the seven who was chosen to handle the food distribution for the Hellenist widows. And he went to Samaria. We aren't told why. But he went there, and God used him to see uh, many, many people of the Samaritan. He's not from Ethiopia. Um, And so there's one of these things that is used here. um, There was the account that, I don't understand all of it, but most of the Bible scholars said this man was not from Ethiopia, but he's probably from northern Sudan, or an area that used to be, used to be called Nubia. And, and it was a well-known um, kingdom that was there, and this was one of the higher-ups in that kingdom, in charge of the treasury for the queen. And so he's a very, very significant man. He's a God-fearing man. He's a man who seeks after God, who is hungry to know the Lord, and has gone so far as to make himself a proselyte of Judaism. So he obviously is a man who has been disillusioned with the religion of his own country. He has been, he's empty. He doesn't see any help, any help or hope in whatever religion of Nubia, of his home country. It just is doing nothing for him. And in his quest to know God and to seek after God, there's something about Judaism that has drawn his attention. And obviously there is much truth there. Insofar as they are keeping with Scripture, the Old Testament is the Word of God, and this man obviously recognized that. But he's not a believer. And so this is one of these cases in the Scripture where we can see how much an unbeliever is capable of. As Paul would say in Romans chapter 1, he says that the unbeliever is able to know God, honor God, and give thanks to God. And so even though we know that no one seeks after God continually, 
That is not to say that no one apart from God ever seeks after God. There are many people in Scripture who do not know God, who are unbelievers, unsaved, and they are seeking after God. And the Scripture would call them even God-fearing people. We often want to be referred to, when it comes to the searching of Scripture, we'd like to call ourselves Bereans. And there's a great Christian ministry, it even calls himself um, their newsletter, the Berean Newsletter. Well, what most people forget is that the Jews of Berea, and we're going to see this later in Acts, were not saved. But they were people who were seeking Scripture to know God and wanted to truly know Him. And when Paul came and preached a gospel that they had never heard before, they didn't reject it out of hardness of heart. They went to Scripture to see, is this true or not? And so... Sometimes people would want us to think that the unbeliever has no capacity, no ability to seek after God or to know God. That's simply not true. There's nothing in Scripture that says that an unbeliever is unable to seek after God or unable to believe in God. Many do. The Ethiopian eunuch is one of those many. So he's a man in a foreign country who is seeking after God. He has become a proselyte to Judaism, which is no small thing. It it shows great commitment and great cost. He has traveled a great distance and probably had an entourage of people with him, soldiers and bodyguards, because that's how a man of this position would would have traveled. And he is truly wanting to know the Lord. And he's at Jerusalem at the right time to know Christ. And yet he leaves Jerusalem without knowing him, which I find fascinating. I mean, if there was ever a good time to be in Jerusalem and hear about Jesus and salvation, this is the time. And yet this guy travels all the way from his home country, spends weeks probably in Jerusalem, And no doubt heard many of the things that were going on, maybe even heard about Stephen being stoned, certainly would have heard about the thousands of people who are coming to faith in Christ and being baptized. He could not have been totally ignorant of these things. And yet he leaves unsaved. It would appear that though he was hearing things, no one ever sat down with him and explained the gospel to him. But before he left Jerusalem, he purchased a portion of Scripture. Again, would have been at great expense. This was no small thing. You had to be a wealthy person to purchase Scripture. And he had purchased at least a portion of Isaiah, maybe the entire book of Isaiah. And that would have cost him a fortune. And now he's in his chariot, slowly making his way back to his home country. And these, these caravans would move slow enough that people could walk alongside them. And so that's how Philip is going to be able to catch up to this chariot. So let's get back to the text and see how all this transpires. And so first we're told in verse 25, it says, And so when they, this is Philip and, I'm sorry, Peter and John, had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and we're preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But they're going to leave Samaria. Okay? They're there preaching. They go through a lot of the villages. But God has Peter and John leave Samaria. 
Philip, still in Samaria, the evangelist, having a very fruitful ministry. And God's going to make him leave. It's hard to understand the ways of God sometimes, isn't it? All these people coming to Christ. And the key three players and the Samaritans coming to Christ, God removes all three of them. It's hard to figure sometimes. Verse 26. But an angel of the Lord, and this is not the angel of the Lord. Okay, and this is an important distinction. You never see the definite article, the angel of the Lord mentioned in the New Testament. Never. Okay, and I and I was surprised because I was reading one commentary and they said this is the angel of the Lord. No, it's not. So I well maybe I'm missing something. So I got out my Greek New Testament. The definite article is not here. So this is not. It is translated correctly when it says an angel of the Lord. Now, the reason this is an important distinction, because in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord claims to be God. He demands worship. And he does many things in the Old Testament to prove that he is God. And so of the three persons of the Trinity, we believe that the angel of the Lord is the second person of the Trinity. He is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And so the reason we never see him in the New Testament is because we see Jesus incarnate in the Gospels, and Jesus indwelling the believer after we get past the Gospels. And so we will never see the angel of the Lord again. He is only in the Old Testament. It is Christ in the Old Testament. And so we won't see him in the New. So this is an angel of the Lord. Still a significant thing. And an angel of the Lord speaks to Philip and says, Arise and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem. Now, he could have just picked him up and taken him there. That would have been nice. But he says, walk. So he goes. It's not a small journey and a difficult journey. And he doesn't even know what he's going to do on the road. But he says, just go to the road that goes down to Gaza. Why? You'll figure it out. Just go to the road that goes down to Gaza. So he does. And he arose and went. And behold, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. So now Philip's had an angel talk to him, and he's had the spirit of God talk to him. But let's back up a little bit. Clearly, this is God supernatural leading of this man. But we shouldn't walk, take away from this that this is the way that God always leads. He either speaks to us by an angel or he speaks to us directly by the Spirit. Can God do those things today? Absolutely. Does God do those things today? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean it's the typical way that he leads believers. Philip was just as much led by God to go to Samaria as he was led by God to leave Samaria. How was he led by God to go to Samaria? Just providentially. There was persecution. And it seemed like a good idea to go to Samaria. It doesn't look spiritual at all. And even though it doesn't look spiritual, and Philip was just responding to the circumstances at hand, he was still following God's leading. Okay, so I applied to Dallas Seminary many years ago. I actually applied to two schools, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School up in Chicago and Dallas Theological Seminary. 
And the only reason I applied to those two schools is because they're the ones that I knew the best. Trinity Evangelical Divinity School is the E-Free Church Seminary, and I'd been in E-Free Churches for most of my life by that time. Dallas Theological Seminary, because I had had teachers um, and been exposed to the seminary and liked what I'd been exposed to. Both good, solid evangelical schools at the time. And so I thought, can't go wrong, and so I applied to both. Well, bummer. I got accepted by both. Well, now, well, now I have to make another decision. Which one? Two equally good schools. Well, one of them, Trinity, was three years long. Dallas was four years long. I like three years. I don't like four years. And so Trinity, though, on the, on the negative side, was in Chicago. And it's cold up there. And they're funny, talk funny, look funny. And so I thought, no, I'd rather be in Texas. But then it came down to the very spiritual reason that I went to Dallas instead of Trinity was that neither place had a place for me to sleep. And at the last minute, a week before school started, Dallas called me up and they said, we had somebody cancel out of the dorm. We've got one spot left in the dorm. And so for the very unspiritual reason that there was a bed for me, I went to Dallas rather than Trinity. Now I look back on it and I go, it's exactly where God wanted me to be. But I didn't hear the Spirit of God say, go to Dallas. I didn't have an angel speak to me. It was simply circumstances. But nonetheless, God was leading. And sometimes we tell students often at His Hill, how do you know what the next thing to do is? Do the next thing. And that's, many times, God's will for you is the next thing to do. And and we just miss it because we're looking for God's Spirit to talk to us. We're looking for an angel to show up or something. And we're looking for handwriting on the wall. And many times, it's simply the next thing. Sometimes it's not. And when it's not, God will make that clear to us. But typically, it's just the next thing. Do it. When we moved to Bernie, um, it was a very small town back in those days, and we didn't know very many people, but I had 13 different jobs that were offered to me in a short period of time. Who gets 13 jobs offered to them? And so I'm going, what do I do? And I was praying about it, and, 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 I, and I really felt in my spirit, God didn't want me to take any of those jobs. Well, I'm living at home, and my dad's feeding me, and so I can't make that decision not to take a job without consulting the one who's providing for me. So I said, Dad, what should I do? I really don't feel like I'm supposed to go back to school right now, and I have 13 job opportunities, and I'm not feeling like any of them is right. And so I'm going to listen to my dad because he's my authority. I'm living under his roof, and Dad says, well, maybe God just wants you to stay home for this semester. Wow, that's the last thing I expected to hear. I expected, what are you, a freeloader? Get a job. I don't care what job it is. But he said, maybe God just wants you to be at home this semester. Well, I took that from the Lord. Well, little did I know that my older brother, who had just gotten married a few months before, had, a, had, been, had, had leukemia and was in remission that September, and this was late August when I'm turning down all these jobs, that September, right at the first of the month, the leukemia came back. And because I'm not in school and don't have a job, I'm able to spend that whole fall 
with my brother and his wife. And it was very significant for me and for them. And then the Lord took my brother home after Christmas, January, and all of a sudden the Lord says, go get a job. And I knew in my spirit, now's the time to get a job. All those 13 jobs were gone. What do I do? Don't have any skills, don't have any education. So I went to the gravel pit, which is now the rim. And I, and I walked in, and I went to the, to the main office there, and I applied for a job, filled out my job application. And, the, and so then the, um, the personnel director came out, and, and, and this young woman, and, and she looks at my application, and, and she starts an interview with me. And she says, I've looked at your application, and you've, done, you've worked or gone to school for your whole life, except the last four months. What have you been doing? And I said, well, my brother's had leukemia, and I've been spending the last four months with him. And she says, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, if we were to hire you, would that keep you, would your brother's leukemia keep you from working here? And I said, no, ma'am. And she goes, well, why not? And I said, because he's good now. He's with Jesus. She goes, oh, I'm so sorry. And I said, I'm not sorry, and neither is he. I miss my brother, but he's in a far better place. She didn't know what to do with me. This is, not, this is not a good way to interview for a job, I'm telling you. And so then she, she, she just puts her head down, and she's she just thinking, what do I do with this kid that's clearly a Jesus freak? And, and, and she lifts her head up, and she goes, you've applied to be a laborer. And I said, that's right. She goes, why? I says, because I don't know anything. <laughs> and she goes, well, if I make you a laborer, you will be shoveling gravel out of train boxcars all day long. You don't want to be a laborer. And I said, you're right. I agree with that. I do, I do not want to be a laborer. And I, and I said, what do I want to be? And I just asked her, what do I want to be? And she says, you want to be an assistant asphalt plant operator trainee. I still can't even hardly, it's a mouthful. Assistant, assistant I can't even say it twice. I mean, I, and I go, really, what do you do? And she goes, you make asphalt. And I go, Okay, and I'm thinking, big vat of oil, throw some rocks in, stir it with a stick. And, and, and she, goes, it's, it, she goes, it's all automated, except sometimes it's manual from what they tell me. And I go, okay, manual, that's the big stick with the rocks. And she goes, is there any reason that, we couldn't, that you couldn't work here? And I said, well, just one, and that is, I go to church on Sunday. I mean, this is the craziest job interview. And I said, I don't want to work on Sunday. And she goes, well, the amazing thing is, this is the asphalt division is the only division out here that doesn't work on Sunday. And I go, I'll take the job. <laughs> it was amazing. And I remember pulling up to that job site the first day, and I'm scared to death. It's a new job. I don't know anybody. And I've worked construction before. I know what the men can be like. And I pulled in, and I just bowed my head on the steering wheel, and I said, God, I thank you that you've gone before me. This was in January. And, and it was one of the coldest winters on record in Texas. And there's this little bitty room, maybe 10 by 10 at the largest, and that's the operating room, the control room. My job was to be in the control room and learn how to make asphalt. By the way, I learned the difference between automatic and manual was a setting on the switchboard. And so you just switch auto, manual. I never figured out why. Just sometimes we'd go, well, let's just do manual. <laughs> Nothing changed. And so that was the only thing. But that cold winter, there was about nine or ten men on, on any shift, 
And those men would spend their almost the entire nine-hour shift sitting in that control room. They weren't supposed to be there. I was supposed to be there with the, with the plant operator. And those guys would get to telling their jokes and everything, and, and, and I'm sitting there going, Jesus, don't let me laugh. Don't let me laugh. Because they're terrible. They're awful jokes. But, but they're funny. They're, but they're awful. And, and, so they would, and so they'd go, Charlie, what do you think about this? I'm making a long story, and, they, and, they, and, they, and I said, you don't want to know. And they go, no, we do know. And I go, trust me, you don't want to know what I think about that. And so they would pull it out of me, and I would tell them about Jesus. And we'd spend, I kid you not, three, four, five hours sometimes in a shift sitting around talking about Jesus. That lasted for five months. I could never have orchestrated that. I didn't have an angel appear to me. I just did the next thing, the next thing thing that God put clearly in my path. And it doesn't always work out that well. I understand that. It's not always smooth sailing. But I look back and go, it was miraculous that God had me there at that time, and those men's hearts were so open. It was amazing. And that's what I, what I see here with Philip. He just, he, he was persecutions, terrible circumstances. He just went to what, in his mind, at that time, seemed the logical thing to do, go to Samaria. Maybe because it looked safe. I don't know. But it was, it was a reasonable decision in his mind. And he gets there, and the people are wide open ready. And in the midst of that harvest, God says, you're leaving. That doesn't make sense. And then Peter and John are also told to leave. So God leaves all those brand new believers in the midst of that harvest with nobody to shepherd them. And he takes this man for one single man on a road. That man needs to hear. And you're the guy to tell him. I read one guy who says, you know, God, in God's economy, he is not nearly as efficient as we would like for him to be much of the time. And as he followed that line of thought, he said, think about it. You know, he could, have had any, he could have had the Ethiopian be saved in Jerusalem. And Philip would not have had to leave Samaria. That doesn't make good, efficient sense. Okay? And then Philip is going to end up in Caesarea by the end of this chapter. And, instead of, and there's going to be a, a centurion up there who needs to know the Lord, just like this Ethiopian. And he could have easily had Philip lead the centurion to Christ. Because Philip is known as the evangelist by that time. And Philip has, has gotten married and has four adult daughters who are called prophetesses by that time. And yet God doesn't use Philip in Caesarea to lead the centurion to Christ. He brings Peter there. That's not efficient. God, don't you know how to put the right people at the right place at the right time? I think he does. But it doesn't always make sense to us. But God's got more going on in any given circumstances going on, including this virus, than anything we could think of or imagine. God is in control, and he's moving people around, and he's, and he's putting the right people with the right people with hungry hearts at the right time, in the right place. It looks like chaos to us. I've just finished reading through Revelation again. And, and it's another, another one of those places where you go, from the earthly view, it looks like chaos on earth. But from the heavenly view, everything is happening exactly as God wants it to happen. We can take confidence in that. 
So, this is what we do know about the heart of God. God looks for the heart that is inclined to him. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the earth search The eyes of the Lord search the earth looking for the heart that is inclined to him that he might strongly support that person. That tells me that there are, and as Jesus said, the fields are white unto harvest. And God is looking over this earth. And no one cares for the lost more than God does. He cares so much he gave his son to die for his enemies. I wouldn't do that. But God loves this world more than any of us could ever love it. And he loves his enemies, and he gave his son to die for his enemies. And when there are hearts out there that are inclined to him, God is looking for those hearts. And he doesn't look past them. We know from Scripture that God draws all men to himself. We know that the fields are white unto harvest. But we also know no one can hear concerning Jesus unless someone tells them. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, and beginning in verse 13. This is clear stuff. Romans 10, 13. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And whoever means anybody. Okay? That is a broad circle that encompasses everybody. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. saved. But make no mistake, the name of the Lord is Jesus. How do I know that? Look at verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. So you have to know the name of Jesus to be saved. It's not just calling upon God. The Ethiopian eunuch called upon God. He went to Jerusalem to worship God. But he was lost as a goose. There are many people who are not atheists, who are God-fearing, God-seeking, and they are lost. Okay, You're not saved just because you have a heart for God. You have to place your faith in Jesus which means you have to hear concerning Jesus. So that's why these next verses, verse 14, How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. Philip was sent to the Ethiopian because the Ethiopian had a hungry heart for God. He was seeking after God, a lost man with a tender heart. And he needed to hear. He had the Bible. Often that'll be enough. Many, many people on the basis of simply having God's written word have come to faith in Christ. Many people have and still do today. But that man was reading from a very difficult portion of Scripture where the people of Jerusalem were not interpreting that to be Jesus. They were saying, it's anybody but Jesus. So he probably had some bad stuff in his head that needed to be sorted out. Look at verse 17. So faith comes from hearing 
and hearing by the word of Christ. This man needs to hear. And God sends Philip so that he can be led to Jesus. So Philip, spirit goes, that's the guy. Go talk to him. Philip goes running up. Would have been easy to catch him because they're just plodding along. Runs up and here the guy's reading from all places Isaiah. Oh, man. And of all places in Isaiah, Isaiah 53. That is the messianic chapter of the Old Testament. There is no chapter in the Old Testament that more clearly presents Jesus than Isaiah 53. Philip must have been going, unbelievable. Only God could do this. That's when you know you're in the right place at the right time, right? You walk up to a guy, he's reading from Isaiah 53. He goes, do you understand what you're reading? Nope. Can you help me? (laughs) Can I help you? Well, come on up in the chariot. I mean, Philip must have been just grinning from ear to ear. Unbelievable what God has done. And so they, I don't know, I mean, I, let's just go to Isaiah 53 real quick. See what I'm talking about here. These two verses that are quoted for us in Acts 8 are right in the heart of Isaiah 53, and it's verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 is pretty clear to understand. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open up his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not even open up his mouth. Now, in Acts 8, and in Isaiah 53, that verse is almost identical, but it's the next verse that he's reading from Acts 53, verse 8, that is not so clear. In the Acts 8 passage, it is, In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who shall relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. But when you read it from Isaiah 53, 8, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? So that's a little easier to go. It says Jesus was robbed of justice. That's what he's, but it's not easy to understand. He know, we know that he was oppressed, that he was afflicted, that he went like a lamb to the slaughter, but he was robbed of justice and cut off from his generation. Who understands this? And so this Ethiopian is going, I don't get it. Is, he talking, is Isaiah talking about himself or is he talking about somebody else? Today, the Jews say, many of them, that, this is a, that Isaiah was talking about the nation of Israel, that they are the suffering servant. Well, that makes no sense when you go through the chapter. And so I think that Philip probably said, let's just start at the beginning of the chapter. Look at verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves, ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity um, of us all to fall on him. It, I mean, I'm telling you, all you have to do is just say, think of Jesus when you read that passage. And so this, Philip, is just from this passage, uses the Bible to lead this man to Jesus. And that's what it says. He says, Verse 35, and Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And he had to be thrilled. A ready heart, hungry heart, reading from the scripture. How can you mess this up? You can't. I remember hearing a story of a pastor 
older man who was mentoring a younger pastor who was interning in his church. And, um, and so the pastor was taking him around on visitation calls, as people used to do in the past, um, still do some, I guess. And so as the pastor showed him how you can walk into a person's home and get a, you know, find out whether they know Jesus or not and share the gospel. So the pastor did this at three or four different homes. And then he said, next house, it's your turn. And so they go into this home, and this young pastor totally, totally messed it up. And the old pastor was just agonizing. And he's just going, oh, Jesus, have mercy. This has got to be the worst gospel presentation I've ever heard in my life. And, you know, he, he mentioned Jesus, and he talked about his death, his burial, his resurrection, but it was just, it was just not smooth. It was not presented in a well. It was confusing. And, 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 and finally, when the guy, the young pastor was finished, he, he, he asked the couple, do you have any questions? And they said, can you just tell us how to get saved? We're ready to pray now. And the, the older pastor is going, unbelievable. And it says it just spoke to him and encouraged him that when God has prepared people's hearts, you can't mess it up. Just preach Jesus to them. And they're going to get saved. All they need to hear is Jesus gave himself for you, rose again from the dead, so that you might place your faith in him, have your sins forgiven, and receive eternal life. It's not complicated. And these people said, how do we just pray with this to receive Christ? Now, as soon as this man believes, the Ethiopian says, look, water, verse 38. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, where did he get that thought? Philip wasn't talking about baptism. And you don't have to be baptized to get saved. So what put that in this man's head? Well, I think two things. One, you had to get baptized to become a proselyte. So this man had already been baptized once before. He knew that when you were changing faith, you demonstrated it by baptism, at least in the Jewish culture. So to become a Jew by, by conversion, because you're either born one or you convert and be a proselyte, you had to be baptized. Some say that it was self-baptism because the Jews wouldn't baptize a proselyte. I don't know if that's true or not. It's one of the things I read. So they'd have to go down the water and scoop the water up and baptize themselves. And so this man had probably done that. But also, I think, and again, I can't, I can't argue this. Don't, you know, it may be heresy. I don't think it is. But I believe that the Spirit of God does put on people's hearts what he wants them to do. And the Spirit of God will tell a new Christian, you need to be baptized. Again, it's not for the sake of being saved, but it is something that God wants Christians to do. I'll never forget as a 10-year-old boy when I received Christ, two things came into mind. I want to tell people what's happened to me, and I want to get baptized. Nobody told me I needed to tell anybody, and nobody told me I was supposed to be baptized. I believe it was just simply the Spirit of God. Nobody even told me that I'd received the Holy Spirit. I knew almost nothing. All I knew was Jesus loves me, he died for me, he rose again from the dead, and I wanted a relationship with him. Pretty simple. And as a 10-year-old, 
I got to school the next day, and I couldn't wait to find my two best friends and tell them what had happened to me. And yet I couldn't tell them because I didn't know what had happened to me. They thought I'd lost my mind. And so then I had an opportunity in our church to get baptized. And I somehow knew that baptism was a way to publicly say that you belong to Jesus. My church never taught that. We grew up in a church that never explained what baptism really meant. But in my heart, I knew this is the way that I can let people know what has happened to me. So I signed up for baptism. In our church, it was just sprinkling. But for me, it was my public declaration of faith in Jesus Christ. So I think two things are going on here. One is this Ethiopian knew what baptism signified because he himself had been baptized to become a Jew. And he understood that that was identification with Judaism. He wants to identify with Jesus Christ. Baptism signifies identification. And secondly, I think the Spirit of God was talking to him just like the Spirit of God was talking to Philip and impressing upon his heart, you need to do this. Now, this is not to be a sermon about baptism, but it is a good opportunity to say, if you as a believer in Jesus Christ have not been baptized, you should really think about it. Again, there's, you, don't, you don't have to in order to advance spiritually, but it is a, a clear way, and I believe mandated way, that the Bible wants us to express our faith in him. Now, what happens? Verse 37 is probably not in our Bibles originally. There's no ancient manuscript to support verse 37. It was probably added later. That's why it's in brackets. And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Nothing necessarily wrong doctrinally with the verse, just not good manuscript support for it. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down in the water, Philip as well as the Ethiopian, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. This is the same word for the church is going to be snatched up into the air. And so it's the idea of rapture here, to be taken up. And so this is another rapture in Scripture. There are a number, actually. And the big one that we think about is the rapture of the church. But there are a number of others. The two witnesses of Revelation were raptured up. We have Elijah and Enoch that were raptured up into heaven. So there are numerous raptures in Scripture. This is another one. He didn't go to heaven. He went to Azotus, Okay, And well, you know, that's 20 miles away. Why? I mean, he walked much further than 20 miles to get to this road to meet the Ethiopian. You know, and why does he need to be raptured and placed in Azotus? We're not told. But in God's economy, he says, I'm going to spare you the walk this time. And so he looks around and he goes, this is different. <laughs> I was just in the water. And now I'm in Azotus. I mean, he's standing in the street wet, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I mean, I mean can you imagine these things? And, and, and he goes, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know where I'm supposed to go. And so we're back to him just thinking, well, the next thing must be the right thing. And so he goes, I guess I'm supposed to go home. Caesarea is apparently where he's from. And so he starts making his way from the southern coast of, um, coastline of Israel all the way up to the northern part of the coastline to Caesarea. And the whole way he's preaching Jesus. 
And when he finally gets up to Caesarea, he, he stays there for the rest of his life. Gets married, has four daughters who are all prophetesses, and he's known as the evangelist. So one small section of his life, an angel appears to him, the Spirit of God directs him to a certain place, and then he's snatched away. Wow! But the rest of his life wasn't that way. The rest of his life was simply following the providential leading of God and being obedient to what God was doing. The Ethiopian? That wasn't quite fair to him. I mean, I, again, I think the guy needs to be discipled. All he's heard is the gospel. And God takes the man away who could have done that. And he's left there all by himself. Bummer, right? This tells me that the evangelist and the discipler are not always the same person. And many times it's not possible to be everything in one person's spiritual development. It's just not possible. And you have to be okay with that. We're going to have kids come to Christ this summer at His Hill. Many of them we will never see again. That's okay. Their faith does not depend on His Hill. They've placed their faith in Jesus. Jesus will save them. And Jesus will take care of them. That doesn't mean I don't care and I'm not concerned. It just means that His Hill and Charlie McCall cannot be everything spiritually to every person. God knows that. He never expected us to be. We each are going to have a part in a person's life. We will be a link in a chain. We will not be the whole chain for anybody. And that's okay. And so God removes Philip, and this Ethiopian would have been thrust just in total dependence upon Christ, and I believe the Lord is going to meet him and, and, and grow him and, and bring him um, to the knowledge of Jesus, more full knowledge of Jesus that he needs. But what does it say? The Ethiopian, the end of verse 39, he went on his way rejoicing. Rejoicing because he's just been saved. And I think rejoicing also because he's just been baptized. I joke oftentimes, I've, if you've seen me do a baptism, I've, I've many times said, it's my favorite outdoor activity. And I say that because it never ceases to amaze me at the joy of those being baptized and of the joy of those watching. And this brand new believer just put his faith in Christ, immediately baptized, and he goes away rejoicing. I don't think he's rejoicing about Philip that's an aspect of it. But he's rejoicing about his salvation and the joy that God gives in obedience. This is where some people make baptism too big a deal. Because when we experience believer's baptism, and we all, as, as a believer, when you are baptized, you will experience joy. I am no prophet, but I can tell you that. You will know the joy of the Lord when you obey God to be baptized as a believer. Always. Well, it's so significant that people put too much significance on the baptism. And I think the point is simply, every time a Christian obeys God in faith, he's going to know the joy of the Lord. Every time. There is no greater joy than to walk in faith and obedience to the Lord. We then know God's joy.
So I'm going to finish up, should have finished up a long time ago, you're probably saying, um, just with a couple more lessons here. See if there's something I haven't covered. There are key ingredients or factors to salvation. Number one, a hungry heart. If a person's not hungry, the Word of God is not going to penetrate. The Word of God is powerful unto salvation. But the heart has to be ready. I've heard different evangelists say that they believe that there's never been anyone who's come to faith in Christ who did not have someone praying for his salvation before he came to faith. That's a pretty amazing thought. If it's true, and we do know from Scripture there's no one who, who cannot be saved, but we know that God does not violate the will of the man. And so the heart needs to be prepared, and we should pray for people that we know that aren't saved, that God would ready their hearts. The second thing is the Word of God. They must hear concerning Christ. And typically what God is going to use in bringing the Word of God to someone is a person. I shouldn't say typically, always. So even if it's the Bible that somebody comes across in a motel room, some person put that Bible there for them to read. There is always human agency involved in some way in the salvation process, always. And then, so there needs to be a hungry heart, the Word of God, and an obedient Christian. How shall they hear unless someone tells them? And then, obviously, God does the saving. God saves those who seek after him. The one who believes in the Lord will not be disappointed. I was, I won't do it today, maybe another time as we go through um, Acts. I've got a whole bunch more notes here on the purpose, purposes of persecution and perspective on persecution, blessings of persecution, condition of persecution, all these different things, because this chapter starts out talking about persecution. And I, I will say what we, can, what we can see from this chapter on just some of the purposes that God brings persecution, um, allows persecution to come into our lives to scatter the church, because sometimes we're cloistered too much. To purify the church, purify God's people. To give witness of Christ in the world. To make the Jews jealous. Paul speaks of that in Romans. That sometimes God's going to permit the church to be persecuted, individual Christians to be persecuted, so that as we respond in joy, and the Jews are being persecuted, and they aren't knowing the joy of the Lord, they would look at us and go, what is the difference here? They're suffering the same things we suffer, but they have joy. What do they have that we don't have? To make the Jew jealous, and even to expose the hearts of the righteous and the unrighteous. There's a lot of people that think they're righteous when they're not. And when you start seeing people being persecuted and they've done nothing wrong, all kinds of hearts begin to be exposed, right? Right? And so the righteous judge is going to allow persecution of his people so that he might righteously judge those who are not coming to faith in Christ but would actually turn against those who are his people. 
So those are just some of the purposes, and there's many more, to, much more the scripture has to say about persecution. I'll close this in prayer. God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for your ways. And we don't understand all your ways, God, and, but I do thank you for the encouragement that we have from your word that you put your people with those that are seeking after you in the right time, in the right place, that we might simply preach Christ to them. To speak of Jesus, using your word, God, to, to make others know of Jesus. Lord, we know that your word is true. That faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And that it's not possible for people to believe if they have not heard concerning Christ. So I pray, God, that we would just take every life circumstance as an opportunity to be under your spirit's direction and to be led to those whose hearts are open. And then our mouths would be free and bold, Lord, to speak concerning Jesus. Open our eyes, God, to the harvest that is white. And open our mouths, God, to speak clearly, boldly concerning Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.